the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, we have interesting times on the new year here. We now have a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, and we have a president of the United States, Joe Biden, who has confirmed that he will act as a racist and a sexist in his picks. He will not look at merit. He will not look at qualifications. He will not look at experience. First and foremost, he will look at race and sex. Got to be black and got to be a woman. Black men, sorry. Uh, Men of any kind, sorry. White women, sorry. Hispanic women, sorry. It doesn't matter. That's Joe Biden. Amazing that we're at that point where he, he can announce publicly in his campaign and then as president in the last 24 hours announce that he will be racist and sexist and nobody says a word. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But hey, first of all, let me remind you, this is the Daily Wink. What you need to know, this segment here, what you need to know. But you can go over to ProAmericaReport.com and listen to all these segments and listen to all the interviews, but also sign up for the Daily Wink. The Daily Wink is an email that goes out at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific. It goes right to your inbox Monday through Friday. And it gives you a couple of stories, usually a couple of links, a couple of ideas and what you need to know. What I'm seeing and what you may not be seeing, may not be hearing so that you can understand things. So please visit ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there. I promise you, I do not uh, utilize your email address. I don't sell it. I don't rent it. I don't know anything. This is just a, a service to try to provide information, what you need to know. All right. So today's segment on the radio show here and on the podcast is about Justice Breyer. And I want to give you the context. You may say to yourself, well, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of big fights at the U.S. Supreme Court over, say, abortion, Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, over marriage, Obergefell. And it's pretty clear, definition of sex, you know, changing the definition of sex to include all the genders, all these. There are these culture wars. It's true. That is true. And they are big. And, And don't get me wrong. We need to underscore that the left has been unable to pass through legislatures in the states or locally, and certainly not in the federal uh, Congress, the kinds of things that they want. They couldn't pass an abortion uh, law. They couldn't pass a marriage law. They couldn't pass a lot of laws on the, on the hot-button issues, but they, and they do it by the courts. Their vision is, it's okay, you break the system, manipulate the system by having no standards, no principles, and just get the judges to declare. You know, the, the black-robed oligarchs is the phrase that someone used once, I always like using. So that's the context of the, of the culture wars. But let's pull back for a moment, and let me make clear to you that you have to put on your money filter, the follow-the-money filter, because the decisions that are made at the Supreme Court are decisions that impact the way money is spent for example, Citizens United, this is, a, this is one about campaign finance, was a case that basically allowed corporate money to be spent in politics, said it was speech. That, that created multi-billion dollars spent in that field. You know who gets that money? 
whether you agree with it or not, I'm not a big fan of Citizens United. I, I'm for more transparency. It allows a lot less transparency. But you know who gets that money? All the swamp consultants, all the politicians. It's for the, it's, it protects incumbents more than it protects we the people, especially because there's not transparency. I'm, I, I, the number one thing I am for in campaign finance reform is, is more transparency. But that's money. Go to the Supreme Court and you say, what is the Supreme Court deciding on the power of unions? What is the Supreme Court deciding on the power of the regulatory state? What is the Supreme Court deciding on, on, the, on the Environmental Protection Acts and the intrusions on pri- property, personal property, real property, intellectual property, the agenda of the nation, the direction of the nation is dramatically impacted. And I would say, and I would argue, it's not supposed to be this way and it's negative, but it's dramatically it's dramatically impacted by who's on the Supreme Court. You know, the, the example in the old days was the trial bar, you know, the plaintiff's trial bar. And you would have the judgments, massive judgments and decisions made. And you'd say, well, that, that's favoring a whole set of people that say they're standing up for the little guy. And a lot of times they became uh, they're standing up for a, a big part of the political action. In other words, the trial attorneys are mostly Democrats these days. It the last 25 years or so. And some Republicans, not many, and they support Democrats in office. And so that's a bit, so what you need to know. In the, so let me, let me pause now and tell you something that I think you can see. But when I describe it, you may see it better. The interested parties in the Supreme Court makeup are the wealthiest and most powerful people and entities in the world. Corporations, sure, but also the special interest groups. And the front groups for the special interest groups and the groups like Planned Parenthood and the school teachers unions and all these groups, the most powerful people and entities in the world care about the Supreme Court because of the influence on money. Remember, I said yesterday that a couple of days ago, the Obama administration guarantees on loans was reinstated by Biden, allowing a, I think it was a $100 billion, I forget the number, loan to be given for green energy. And it's a guaranteed loan by the government, which means when the government does it, you get really good rates, so you make money on it. In other words, if you and I go out and buy, we decide we're going to buy a piece of land, and we go to the bank and they say you're going to have to pay 10% interest, let's say 7% interest on it. So we got to pay 7% interest. That costs us 7% interest. That's, it. That's the number. If you go to the a government and they say, oh, we're going to guarantee the loan for you and we're going to make the rate because it's guaranteed by us, it'll only be 2%. You've just made 5%. You see, so the picking and choosing winners and losers is not only in, say, the stimulus bill or the so-called infrastructure bill that transfers massive amounts of wealth. It also is in the regulatory, regulatory state and the administrative state and the decisions that are made by unelected bureaucrats that have to do with property, real property, that have to do with your money, have to do with tax status. And so what you, what you see, and so this is what I was going to tell you, the money, the interest, I said, that behind this, behind, a pick, behind the makeup of the Supreme Court is extraordinary. And so when you watch this play out, understand that on all sides of the fight for a Supreme Court pick is tons of money. And we're not talking about like somebody's running for even U.S. Senate. Even a Congress, certainly not an appointee to state level uh, court. This is big league ball in terms of money, influence, and trying to frame what it's about. Two goals. One is 
succeed or fail on the nominee. If you're Biden and his team, you want to succeed and all the special interests that are with him on the left. They want to succeed. If you oppose that, you want to defeat it. But the other one is you're hoping to try to influence and put on the record the framing of the issues. And you'll see some of that. You'll see some of that trying to get people and they won't do it. I mean, they you know, ever since really Chief Justice Roberts, they have learned the Kabuki theater sort of completely. They did. The judges will say nothing. I mean, remember, if you write that, if you do the history of of the Supreme Court uh, nominations, you know, Justice Scalia, I think, was nominated and confirmed with 99 votes or 98 votes. Uh, it was just after that that we had uh, uh, the Justice Thomas a few years later. Of course, Justice uh, Chief Judge Bork, Judge Ginsburg. Now, the Democrats get a pass. Uh, we have, the Republicans always seem to allow that. But then you watch Kavanaugh get savaged and he was very close to being lost. Right. He's very close to giving up. So the question will become, as Joe Biden expresses out loud that he will be a racist and only pick a black person, that he will be a sexist and only pick a woman, what will happen? Will the Republicans slash conservatives be able to step up and say, even though the person is an African-American or a woman and a woman, we oppose for this reasons? And will the forces that want to oppose that nomination, again, massive, Will they find the right paths to hold it up, delay it, and, and, and have an impact on it? We are headed, I think, you know, you're going to see that a lot of the Republicans, you know, the fear is that they're going to fold. A lot of the Republicans will be under pressure to stand up, but we'll see. But what you need to know right now is this is one of the most important and most powerful and most influential things that happen right now. And let me be clear, it's not good. We shouldn't have a Supreme Court that this that is this powerful, that is this influential, but it is where we are. And so watch for that and watch for the moving parts, the pieces, as you recognize what's going on. And you'll see you'll see some of that. And I you know, my only fear is that the Republicans decide it's not worth the trouble to fight and they fold up shop and uh, and, and don't say much. That's my fear. They've done it before. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, uh, we've got some great interviews again. And please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. I had some folks asking me about that conversation with John Schlafly yesterday about the great Helen Marie Taylor who passed away uh, earlier this week. You can go to ProAmericaReport.com and it's over there. So we'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend Ted Malik, Dr. Ted Malik, is with us, and he's got a great piece. I've been smiling since he referenced it last week when we talked, and I've been smiling since I, I read it, and I'm looking at it again. My time in the tank. One man's story of getting caught up in the deep state's attempt to take down a president by Ted Malik over at American Greatness uh, blog, amgreatness.com. Welcome back, Ted. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Ed. So uh, looking back on your long career, where you've been in a lot of, you know, um, high profile, at least, if not controversial, right? You've been in deals and you've been in academics and all. Um, how did this compare? Meaning, was it professionally done? Was it amateurish? In other words, as they were trying to take down this president, did you come away saying to yourself, these guys are totally, uh, you know, fakers? Or did you think, holy cow, these guys are really rigging the system? Well, I would say in the first instance, they were extremely ideological. Hmm. Uh, this, this was a Clinton-inspired witch hunt. Uh, the so-called dream team had all people who had worked for or were connected to Hillary Clinton herself. So th- there was nothing nonpartisan, objective, or legal about this whatsoever. Hmm. Um, 
Secondly, it was inept. It was a bunch of bumbling, bumbling uh, fools and idiots who couldn't even get a quorum together when they put the grand when I went before the grand jury. I mean, it was that bad. Did you um, did you ever think to yourself this could turn on me? I mean, I, you lived your life in a way that there's not nothing you did that you didn't, you know, kind of either could talk about or has been talked about. But did you ever think to yourself, these people are so far gone that they could they could, you know, they could make me a part of this. And, and I, I mean, were you did that ever cross your mind? Absolutely. Um, they weren't fooling around. They had all the apparatus of the deep state behind them. They'd also done surveillance and had every message, text, email I'd ever written. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was very intimidating. It takes place in a skiff, which is right out of a spy movie set, you know, with the bright lights turned on you. They interrogate you, intimidate you. In my case, it went on for three days. So they were hoping that you would make an error. I was told, my lawyers were told that I was never a target. They were trying to get at somebody else and somebody higher and eventually to Donald Trump. But um, there, were, there were a couple of key places where they said uh, to my lawyers, we could indict him. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's, um, yeah, that, and that's the point. Um, now, moving forward from that experience, which you wrote about, again, AmericanGreatness.com, we're talking to uh, Ted Malik. When you watch the January 6th uh, congressional inquiry, in some ways, it's obviously more political because it's Congress as opposed to when you're getting a call from DOJ and you're getting stopped in the airport and all, um, you know, you, it's it, no matter what, who you are, or what you are, the department of justice, the FBI, you know, law enforcement, you kind of feel that different than Congress bumbling around. On the other hand, Congress is using all, all the power of DOJ and other things. Uh, where are we? I mean, it, 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 it feels like it should be comical that now we have Liz Cheney and, and Congressman Thompson investigating all these different people and yet they're getting away with it. Yeah, it's it's not so funny. It's uh, obviously uh, overtly political. Uh, and I, I don't believe it's a legitimately organized committee of Congress. So I would have great difficulty actually going before it, or I would do what some of my other colleagues and friends have done, is just plead the fifth. I was not involved in January 6th. Right. I, I, you know, so I, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any angle on it. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I do think that they are using it basically as, as a weapon against Republicans and Jim Jordan and Jim Banks and, uh, you know, Steve Scalise and others have said so. So uh, I, I can't wait till we get back in power. We can turn the tables on Luke. Well, read, I, read Luke too. Yeah, that's right. Well, but I, you know, Ted, we're talking with Ted Malik. I mean, one of the things Ted um, that I always, I've always enjoyed about talking to you and reading you is you don't, you know, you don't uh, count the cost. You say what you see and understand. And, and uh, the problem is some of the Republicans that get into power are, you know, they count the cost and they decide that, oh, you know, I want to move up this way or that way. I want to be popular this way or that way. And, you know, I I wonder if we get, um, as someone said, will there be a select committee on Hunter Biden's taxes? There should Mm -hmm. be. Right. There should be. So but let me segue to this then. Here we are. And this is what, another part of what I want to ask you. We're talking Ted Malik. We're facing a U.S. Supreme Court nomination by Joe Biden to replace Justice Breyer. Joe Biden has said, I will be a racist and I will be a sexist in picking. I don't care if you're a black man. You have no right to apply. I don't care if you're a white woman, Hispanic woman. You may not apply. I'm picking a black woman, period. Now, he gets away with that, of course, because the media is insane. but. 
where do you think the Republicans' stomach is, or more broadly, their cojones is on fighting mm-hmm. back against this? And will they do it? And and or will we have Lindsey Graham ask twenty-seven pointed questions for which he's already set them up to know the answers, and they'll uh, let this thing go forward? And then he'll vote in favor of the candidate, right? I'll remind you. Well, I would hope, and I know there are some people on that committee and in the Senate. Josh Hawley is a friend of mine, Tom Cotton and others, who will not make this an, an, an easy battle. It is, in fact, unconstitutional, as the Bakke case proves, to do what Joe Biden is doing. Uh, I'm not saying he shouldn't appoint a woman or a black, but it, 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 it's, uh, it's wrong to tip your hat at the beginning and say these are the only people I will, in fact, um, look at or consider. Um, I mean, it is the Breyer seat, so in effect, we're probably not going <laughs> yeah. to get a Kavanaugh or right. a Gorsuch. Um, I mean, there is a scenario where we could, I mean, I hope Mitch McConnell's listening, if he is listening yeah. to this, uh, I, where we could play this out and drag it past. I know the Democrats don't want this. They want the opposite. But we could drag it past June and therefore throw it in the election season and tie it up like he did last time with Merrick Garland. And then we'd have the seats in the Senate to make sure they didn't get a really radical, progressive, I don't care what color, justice. It's um, we're talking with Ted Malik. Ted, um, when you say I, I know what you mean, but even even us, you and I will say, well, Breyer's pretty um, liberal. I mean, you know, so it's a liberal seat and it doesn't change the balance. On the other hand, as I just did a segment, you know better than I do, because your background as an academic teaching business and as a businessman, a lot of what the Supreme Court does these days is not the hot button cultural issues. It's deciding the regulatory state, deciding the, the level of an, an, an intrusion into, you know, uh, the the uh, business based on environmental regulations, all this stuff. And, and you know, again, um, look, the qualifications of some of the nominees, they floated uh, African-American woman, one of them, uh, you know, Yale or Harvard Law School. I'm, I, I'm not disputing any of that. I'm just saying, do do the do the um the, the democrats fight for everyone and we fight for some of them yeah and we we rarely give them the hard time that they deserve so at, at the minimum you know we, we should do a cabinet on them <laughs> right 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 I, I i agree i mean i and i said i just said it on the segment i was just before this i said there's two reasons why you should fight to care about who these who these nominees are going to be and if they got on the bench one is you know what they actually believe the second is they're human beings and so you, if you get them on record and they say what they believe, they're going to be, I, will it modify their behavior? Maybe it'll radicalize them, but for the left, they're already radicalized. I mean, that, that's not far to go, um, but um, it's going to be interesting to see. All right. Um, what do you think a prediction on the 2022 cycle? Um, I know you have, again, watched and participated in, in various ways for decades and decades on these things. Uh, yeah. Are we looking at 1994? Yeah. Are we looking at uh, 2010? What do you think? Yeah, better than both. Uh, 85 to 100 seats in the House, I've said repeatedly, four to six in the Senate. I mean, with the numbers that he has right now, uh, I mean, even Democrats, Mark Penn, you know, all, of Axelrod, all, all these people are saying that, you know, they're they're running for the uh, outhouse. It's, it's, it's a disaster. I thought you were going to ask me to predict which day Putin was going to invade. Because oh. I've already made, I've already made that bet in Las Vegas. Yeah. What is uh, what is it? They'll give it to me. Tell me. Tell me what you what you predict. It, it's within the next seven days. Let's put it that way. Before the Olympics, everyone's saying it's after the Olympics. Now it's before the Olympics. Huh. And uh, and our reaction is sanctions. 
some kind of sanctions and yeah. some meaningless sanctions, you know, the same. I mean, what did we do when, when, he, when he went in in one day and took all of Crimea? Yeah? Right. Obama slept and, you know, he slapped his wrist. So he, if he's acting on the basis of past U.S. performance, he knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And right. I mean, I'm, my next article, because I'm setting yep. this up again now, I give you the tip off of it. My right. next article appearing probably early next week or this weekend in American Greatness is called The German Question. Oh, about give me some context. What does that mean? Germany as the nemesis and boogeyman of Europe since 1848 to the present. Well, I will tell you, my friend Dominic Tarzinski, who's a member of the European Parliament now and was in the Polish Parliament, he's a Pole, and he says um, there, there's only one uh, bad actor in the EU. It's Germany. They dominate everything. They steer everything to the left. He said it's a, it's a constant fight. Forget about anybody else. It's Germany that is the bully and a really bad bully. So maybe um, you, you, it sounds like you're, you, you agree with Dominic. We're on the same page. All right, uh, Ted Malik. I look forward to that. That's a good preview. We'll talk with Ted Malik next week, as always. Ted, thanks uh, uh, for being with us. His his column, this one on my time in the tank, very interesting uh, to hear and sort of update on what had happened back um, in the time where the Mueller investigation was going. Uh, Ted Malik's over there, amgreatness.com, my time in the tank. I'll put it up on social media. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. My old friend, and I mean that. You say, people on radio always say, my old friend. My old friend, in this case, McGraw-Millhaven. It's probably 15, maybe 20 years I've known McGraw. He's been a longtime host at the Big 550 KTRS in uh, St. Louis. Uh, he has been hosting a morning show. He did an afternoon show at one point. He's really a, a mainstay uh, in St. Louis. He's also a writes uh, columns, does all sorts of creative things with his uh, now with his uh, program on a video and he's most famous at this moment because there is a book called the tender bar that is a really extraordinary memoir i read it about three or four years ago written by his cousin a jr mo ringer who's now famous the book was optioned by george clooney they made it into a movie with ben affleck it's very popular right now and we'll talk about the movie in a minute but the book the memoir includes a character who is McGraw Millhaven is he was one of the cousins in this life in this memoir that's written by a J.R. Moringer and it's extraordinary. It's a really well uh, uh, and so I thought let, let me talk to McGraw again and catch up with him, but also about this uh, book and the movie The Tender Bar. So welcome, McGraw. How are you, Ed Martin? I will. Ne- I can never say no to you, so I am glad to be. <laughs> here. You've been on. Well, that's good. I got a million times, so <laughs> it's about time I return the favor. Well, there you go. I've got this. I want. I've got this land. I want to uh, buy. You can just help me buy it. You'll never say no. Uh, all right. So McGraw, let me ask you a different question. When you read the book, The Tender Bar, the memoir, J.R. Moringer, and even watch yeah. the movie, you say, "Wow, this kid came from nothing. From a lot of, you know, a lot of support, a mother and uncle, a grandpa and grandma. All this stuff. It's pretty extraordinary. We'll get to that. Uh, but when you read the book, and you're in the book, you realize like people come from sort of long shot. Right. And in some ways, McGraw Millhaven, you could have written your, you could write your own memoir of your long shot because you, you, you had a similar you. I think you you were the character that moved to Arizona, I think. Right. And then came back right. to the yeah. family. And then and you made it you made it to college by being a baseball player. I think if I got it right. I mean, what, what, how did your arc in that in the tender bar? It's J.R. Moringer makes it. I mean, I've never met him. He may be the greatest guy ever. I think he seems like a good guy, but he he makes it out of a tough life. And you you did that too. How did your arc go in that in that sort of t- the, the memoir? 
so it's really interesting. Um, memories are an interesting thing. Um, reading somebody else's memories of your childhood is a strange and bizarre exercise. Um, I've always yeah. said it's his story. Um, I would have written a completely different story, right? It's his story. And, and everything that happened, I was either in the scene or watching the scene or heard about the scene or was right next to the scene, like 90% of it. Um, right. And, but yet it's his story. And we lived in the same house at the same grandparents, same uncle, same bar, same friends. But the things that affected him didn't affect me. And, and, and when I read the book, there are scenes where, and this makes it into the movie, where Grandpa takes him to the father-son uh, banquet. And Grandpa did right. the same thing for me, right? We didn't have any fathers, and so we were raised by right. single mothers living in Grandma's house. And so in the movie, Christopher Lloyd, who plays my grandfather, takes him to this father-son dan- uh, uh, like breakfast. Well, two years later, right. Grandpa did the same thing with me. I never would have put that in a, a, a scene in my memoir because yeah, it was nice of grandpa, but it didn't have the same effect on me as it had on Jr. So it was <laughs> interesting reading a story that I knew, but looking at, at, at a perspective from his point of view, that's the only way I can. Uh, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking with McGraw Millhaven. And by the way, you can follow McGraw on uh, uh, Twitter at McGraw Millhaven. I'll make sure to put up on social media and uh, and and uh, 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 link some stuff there uh, on that. But for one second on that, McGraw, when you finish, when you're, you know, you're, you're, well, I guess in your fifties, uh, you know, you, at this point you mentioned, and, and you're looking back at your life and your, your, and your cousin's life and your family's life. As we were talking off the air about how you said some of these characters, like your uncle Charlie, your grandpa, have been, um, memorialized in a way that you sort of everyone will know them for history in a way that you never could have expected. It's pretty cool. But when you look at you and Jr. and probably other cousins, is it do you feel like you can say, hey, this is America at its best. You you, you can be from a family that's imperfect. By, by the way, in the book, I think I remember Uncle Charlie being charming and all, but he's in the movie because it's Ben Affleck. He looks really cool and kind of a <laughs> successful, cool guy. I, 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 in the, get, remind me, Uncle Charlie. He 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 didn't he he didn't he, he's no longer alive, right? His life wasn't particularly. Uh, now looking at it, you say he was a wonderful guy. He loved people, but it wasn't like the most successful thing by lots of measures. And it, when you look at you and Jr., is this what America's about? That you can come from all this crap and still laugh and have fun and be loved and make it. Well, so you've asked me seven questions there. Let me try and break it down for you. Um, Uncle, Char- <laughs> Uncle Charlie, <laughs> w- uh, and then, I mean Ben Affleck. Uh, well, let me say Uncle Charlie was bald. He had um, he had alopecia, so he didn't have a uh-huh. follicle of hair on his head. But he was like seventies right. Kojak cool, right? He was he was cool before bald was cool, um, and right. he was he had a flair to him. And he was sort of an actor behind the bar, and he put an act on. And he didn't just sling drinks; it was an act. He was he was he was performing every night, and he had sayings and and um, you know gyrations that were just part of Uncle Charlie. And you would say, "Hey, what are you doing tonight? Uh, let's go rock the Chaz bar." And you would go, and you'd be entertained by Uncle Charlie, and you'd tell stories, and that was sort of the charm of the bar. Um, so right. he was cool in a way in which Ben Affleck. Isn't right. Ben Affleck's a you know a, a movie star, um, but I thought Ben Affleck captured some really good parts of Uncle Charlie. But 
it was also a somewhat sanitized version. I mean, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was a gambler, not a very good one. And he lived in his mother's, <laughs> you know, he, he lived in his childhood house uh, and in his room his whole life. So, you know, where Hollywood sort of romanticized him, there were some really, you know, he was my uncle and I loved him and he was my godfather. But, you know, there were parts where you didn't want to grow up to be like Uncle Charlie. Um, right. In terms of, in terms of, you know, being raised, and, and a lot of people have sort of pointed this out to us, and we kind of knew. The house was full of love. It was dysfunctional in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of love there. Right. And we were told, right, do as I say, not as I do. And there was no, um, there was no thought of not going to college. There was no thought of, you know, look, we just don't have any money. We're not poor. We're just broke. Um, and that was sort of, that was right. That was sort of the philosophy of it. And yet, but they still, they still taught us in things that didn't cost any money. Right. I mean, they would still, you know, talk to us, um, and teach us and make us read books and talk to us about the current events and all those types of things. So there was a lot of love and there was a lot of education going on. They didn't treat us like children. You know, they didn't JR want a cracker. You know, you had to bring it at the kitchen table and you had to have an opinion. And it had to be backed up by right. facts, or you just sat quiet and listened to the adults talk. If that sort of uh, we're answer, talking with part of your question, yeah, yeah, we're talking with McGraw, McGraw Millhaven. Uh, let me ask about the movie, the Tender Bar, the movie. I told you years ago, the, I loved the book, the the, the book uh, J.R. Moringer's book, the memoir. I loved it. I told you that. Then I didn't watch the movie until I texted you earlier this week or last week because I was I I wasn't happy. I thought, well, it's going to be not the same. But you had an interesting perspective because it's not none of it was the same as you point out. The memoir is not your memoir. The movie isn't the from the his book. So, but t tell me about that. Tell our listeners about how you reacted to the movie and how the whole thing is sort of played out for you. So I I, I knew the book came out in two thousand and five, and it's been optioned by a lot of people. So there's been a lot of scripts floating around Hollywood, and ultimately Amazon Studios got it and Clooney. Uh, read the script, liked it for what it was, and, you know, brought on Affleck, and it was Hollywoodized. Um, and right. I knew um, enough about write, reading books and watching movies and seeing movies from books that you, you can't tell every part of a book. Um, you know, like the movie Lincoln, right? He, they, you, you can only right. tell a sliver of a story. Um, and so right. I knew that it, they were going to have to sort of cut away a lot of the movie and sanitize some of it and make it more sort of fit a, a narrative. So, I, you know, right. Clooney's telling the story. So to the storyteller, you know, he tells the story. If I'm telling the story and I'm making the movie, I'm making a different movie about the same book. So I, I can't get angry with Clooney or Ben Affleck for, for you know, taking something, taking some liberty with my childhood because my sisters and I and Jr. still argue about our childhood. So if, if, <laughs> if we can't agree on our childhood, how can Clooney and Ben Affleck agree? So you, you take it for what it is. And I, I'll, I will say this, and I, and I text this to you, and I really mean this. Um, for all of the liberties Hollywood took and everything else, I get to talk to you about my grandmother yeah. and grandfather. And in a way, it still keeps them alive. And they would yeah. love it. They think it's cool. And for anybody who would stop us on the street and say, let me ask you a question about grandma, grandpa. They would be so angry with us if we blew them off or didn't have time for them. They would say, you sit right. there and you answer. All, if, if they are interested in something you have to say, you, you answer the questions and you are polite and you listen to them and you pay them respect. So in that sense, you know, America gets to, you know, talk to us about grandma and grandpa. And when, it, when it's all said and done, who cares that the, the 
uh, Uncle Charlie's Cadillac was really black and not blue, and, you know, Uncle right. Charlie didn't have hair. We get to talk about Grandma and Grandpa, and that's pretty special. By the way, one, I think I told you, but I'll tell listeners, one time I met Brian Kilmeade. I got to, he gave a bunch of speeches. Kilmeade's family, two or three towns over, his dad ran a bar called Kilmeade's from where your bar, where he knew your bar, he knew the whole story. The, the book had already come out, The Tender Bar, and he knew all about it. And uh, that whole, as you and I were also texting, that whole world in the 70s, 80s of these neighborhood bars that had these characters in them, and it's just a different world. Everything everything moves along. Uh, hey, uh, McGraw, before I let you go, Hold on, JR. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. I, I, I can't let yeah. that stand. That's fake news. Oh. Um, it is? Brian, Brian Kilmeade's bar, the Kilmeade's, wasn't two or three towns over. It was two or three blocks down the street. Oh, and really? So, yeah. And so Kilmeade's, it was a planned home road in Manhattan, that some of your listeners might know. Uh, and as JR writes in the book, the biggest Catholic church is on one end of the street. And the biggest bar is on the other end of the street. In between is lined with bars. And one of them was Kilmeade's bar. And Brian Kilmeade's dad ran Kilmeade's. Now, he died in a car accident when yeah. Brian was yeah. 10, 11, 12, yeah. 13. And Brian had a tough life because him and his family had to sort of pick up the pieces and run the bar. Uh, and they lived yep. in Massapequa. And so I okay. knew I knew Brian. I, so he didn't live in our hometown, but I knew Kilmeade's. And, I may or may not have been underserved or overserved in <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say exactly. That's what that's what I was. That's where we were really heading. You were saying at various times that they were trying to make it float, and you were down there helping float it. All right, but la- last question before I lose you. Now, uh, McGraw, we're talking about McGraw McGraw Millhaven uh, and J.R. Moringer. By the time you're done the book. You're rooting for him, right? You're rooting for him. I mean, excuse me, not the book. The book, too. But the book, the book you finish, and you're like, wow, what a life, what America and all. The movie, when you're done, you're rooting for him, right? He goes off. He's trying the New York Times and all. And when I read about him now, I've never met him, it, it looks like he's a great success. Has he been a great success? And maybe not as a, he's, he won a Pulitzer or something, so he's been a success that way. Has his life been as, as good as you hope it is or a viewer hopes it is? Well, I, you know, I, I, he's married. He has two kids. Um, you know, he's gone on to write. Andre Agassi read The Tender Bar, and he wrote Open for Andre Agassi, considered the best sports wow. biography ever. Uh, he wrote Shoe wow. Dog for Phil Knight, um, which is still going wow. strong. Um, so, I mean, he's been able to sort of parlay this into a nice writing career, and he's wrote, he wrote a nice uh, historical novel called Sutton. And if you're a fan of uh, Willie Sutton, the bank robber. That's a fun sort of his, historical novel. So he's had a chance to do some things, and he's still, you know, plugging along. But you know, look, like everybody else, right? You have success, you have failures, you have good days, you have, you have bad days. Um, and I think right. he would tell you that the book he wrote, well, even though it's about men and bars, I think he would tell you that it really the hero. When people write memoirs, they usually make themselves the hero of the book. And right. he would tell you that he wrote his memoir where all the women in the book were the heroes. The men were the huh. father figures, and the men kept dragging him down, teaching him how to gamble and how to drink, and, right? And the women were the ones right. who sort of kept him on the straight and, and narrow. And so all the women and all their faults and all of their um, coming in and out of his life, they were the true heroes of the memoir. And so, huh. you know, what, what, what is successful? You know, we're all bouncing up walls trying to figure things out. And I, I, you know, he's, he's, him and I are still very, very close. We talk and text all the time. And, 
Um, you know, we sort of laugh and make jokes and, you know, Ben Affleck's really playing Uncle Charlie. How is that even possible? So we've had, it's, <laughs> it's been fun. Let's just say that. Yeah. All right. McGraw-Millhaven, thank you for it's been fun also to have you on. Thank you for coming on. McGraw-Millhaven, everybody. I'll put it up on uh, social media, all his stuff, and uh, appreciate it very much. And Martin, anytime, my friend. Stay safe. All right. McGraw-Millhaven. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The landmark case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, has the potential to be one of the most important cases to come before the U.S. Supreme Court in a generation. It's a clear and direct challenge to Roe v. Wade and subsequent cases that have built up an imaginary wall of protection around the so-called right to choose. As the nation waits for the court to deliver its ruling, probably in late June, every pundit and scholar is speculating on the future of abortion in America. During the oral arguments for the case, the high court's most senior justice broke through all of the semantics of the debate with one very clear and direct question. Justice Clarence Thomas asked where the right to abortion is found in the U.S. Constitution. U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger seemed baffled by the question, so Justice Thomas added more context. Thomas said, quote, If we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, I know what we're talking about because it's written. It's there. What specifically is the right here that we're talking about? End quote. When faced with the weight of Thomas's question, Prelogger could only say that the right to abortion is grounded in the liberty component of the 14th Amendment and the right of a woman to be able to control whether to carry that baby to term. Every discerning conservative should note one important word in her statement. Call it a Freudian slip, but Prelogger could not help but refer to the pregnancy as a baby. Though it was wrapped in layers upon layers of legal jargon, even President Biden's Solicitor General had to admit that the ultimate question in the debate is whether or not to kill a baby. No right to kill an innocent human being exists in the U.S. Constitution. Roe v. Wade was and still is a bad decision. It belongs in the same ash heap as Plessy v. Ferguson and Dred Scott v. Sanford. I applaud Justice Thomas for reminding America what we're talking about on the question of abortion. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Despite the outrageous pro-abortion stance of many liberals, the vast majority of American people value human life. More than ever, pro-life voices need to stay vigilant and be heard. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're not backing down. Please, join us in the battle for life at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. back, everybody. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, we just have less than a minute to finish things up, so let me just do something that I haven't done in a week or so and say thank you to the great Noah Dingley, the producer of this program, Joanna Spilger, who helps produce the program, and also the folks at The Answer San Diego. Uh, as I was recovering from my illness, uh, huge help uh, by everybody there, especially, by the way, Andrea Kay, 
Andrea Kay and Noah Dingley, uh, really heroic and a big help. So thank you for that. Uh, great team, great people. I hope that folks are aware of how um, the Salem Radio Network has just great employees, people that really care about each other. So thank you for that. All right, everybody, I'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.